Well, good morning. I know it's not in the the bulletin, but I wonder if it's alright if we bow our heads and close our eyes and not because there was anything wrong with uh, Dave's prayer in the least. I love to hear men pray well. Thank you, Dave. I just want to pray before we start this morning. Father, I thank you so much for this time that you've given to us this Sunday morning. God, I thank you for the power and the sufficiency and perfection of your word. And Lord, I pray that as we open the word and go to this text, that you would be with me, Father. Lord, help me preach. I beg of you with all my heart to help me preach. And Lord, I pray that you would open every heart and every ear to hear your word this morning. May you be glorified. May your son be exalted. May your people be lifted up and given hope and peace. And may those that do not know you come running this morning to find salvation and eternal life. This I ask in the name of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning to you. I, I, uh, first thing I want to say to all of you is to thank you so much for the hospitality and the kindness that you've shown to, my, to myself, to my wife and my kids over these last few days. And uh, it, it's just been wonderful. Every, every part of it from the minute we got here to, to now has been fantastic. And you've all been so kind to us. Uh, the whole place has been very kind. The kindness of the... I stopped in Walmart the other night and I came around a corner and the stockman said, Good evening, sir. I didn't know what to say. Nobody says that in California. So, <laughs> But thank you all so very much. We're not looking forward to leaving. So thank you all so much. I want to share something a little strange with you, I guess, before I get started this morning. As many of you know from the... The CDs, I think that, that many of you received, or if you've been on uh, the Gateway Church website, you, you, you know that for the last little while I've been, or last long while I've been preaching from Luke. And if you looked in your bulletin this morning, uh, you would have seen that I'm preaching from Luke here this morning, I think. And I just wanted to tell you, before I got started, I don't want you to think that I thought, well, I've been preaching from Luke for a while. And so I'll just pick something I've already preached and it'll be fast and easy and I won't have to really prepare. And I don't want you to think that that's why I'm preaching Luke. That's not why I'm preaching from Luke this morning. And I just didn't want you to think that. I'm not preaching a text because it's convenient and I've already preached it. I, from the moment I knew that I would be preaching here on this day, I began praying and preparing and asking God to guide me to whatever text He would have me speak to you from. And no matter what I studied... No matter what I tried to put together, this one text just would not leave me alone. So I quit overthinking it, and I just settled on this one. And this text, to be honest with you, blows me away. I love every word of it. Every sentence is screaming to be proclaimed, screaming to be made clear. In fact, the text this morning is actually overwhelming because of the way the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put it together. It, it's, it's so tight, and it's so deliberate, and it's so masterfully designed that I can't wait to proclaim it to you today. So, let's get down to business. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not thrown together. They aren't structured the way they are by accident. 
The gospel writers, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, are very deliberate in the way they put the accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus together. And I'm preaching this text this morning because it so clearly lays out for us the necessity and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Savior. And to be honest with you, at the end of the day, no matter how much I study or try to figure things out, all I have for you from the pulpit is Jesus. And that will never change. And He is enough. So if you have your Bibles and they're open already or you want to turn there, we'll be in the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel, as you know. And I just want to ask you some questions to kind of get you thinking in your heart as we move through this text. Where do we look? Where do we look to find the confidence, to find the assurance that we have eternal life? Whose righteousness do we measure to know if we're good enough? Whose work do we rely on to know that we're saved and safe with Jesus Christ? Whose commitment level do we gauge to know whether we're good enough? In Luke 18, God justified those who came to Him in complete dependence and faith rather than those who looked to themselves for the confidence to believe they had eternal life. So I'm just going to walk through this text and then we'll talk as we go. Verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now this is interesting. These little intros, introductions is the proper way to say intro. These little introductions at the beginning in this little section of Luke are unique to this section of Luke. This doesn't usually happen. Parables are not usually set up for us so that we know very clearly who they're about or who they're, you know, what their target is. And Luke does that a couple times in this little section of Luke. And I think it's because he wants to be sure. He wants to be absolutely sure that we don't miss what's in these parables. So he heads them like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For, so here's why, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now the first part of verse 14 is meant to shake us as we read it. The Pharisee was not justified. The Pharisee would have lost his soul, but maybe not for the reason we normally think. I think sometimes we read through the parables or through stories that we know so fast because we're familiar with them that we miss the little nuances that actually shape the meaning and the purpose of the text. The Pharisee is not being presented to us as your classic legalistic person who thinks that he can earn his salvation by his good works. That would be easy to dismiss. It would be very easy to understand why he was not justified if that was the case. But I think that's how we usually read this text. We just assume, we rifle right through it. Oh, he thinks he can earn salvation by his works. 
That's not what's happening in this text. Right? That's, that's, that's not what's happening. The man credits God in verse 10 for his righteousness, not himself. I thank you, God. I thank you that I am not like such and such, that I do these things. So he gives God the credit. It's very important. He gives God the credit, not himself. That's crucial because now we know he's not a heretic who believes that he's able to work up in his own flesh enough goodness for God to accept him. And he's not even kind of a heretic believing that what what really has to happen is God has to give him a little push, but once God has given him a push, then he's able to do good on his own enough for God to accept him. No, no, no. He says, he says, God, you have made me righteous. It's because of you that I do this and I do that and that I don't do this and don't do that. So what's the problem? What's wrong with that? Why do we find out in verse 14 that the man is not justified? He's not right with God, which is what this parable is about. What this whole section is about. Whom does God justify? Who can be made right with God? Who does God not justify? That's what Jesus is addressing here. So the stakes couldn't be higher than they are in this text. Eternity is on the line in this text. The man's problem is not that he believes he's worked up his own righteousness on his own and therefore God accepts him. His problem is that he looks at the righteousness he's performing, even though he's giving God the credit for it, but finds in his acting on it the confidence to believe that he is right with God. So that's his whole position as he goes into prayer, which is why he prays the way that he does. And it's so subtle, but it's so critical to understanding this passage. Yes, he gave God the credit for his righteousness, but he believed that his acting on it is what made him right with God. Right? He, he looked at his fasting, he looked at his tithing, and he said, that's how I know I'm right with God. And you say, how can we say all that? Because of verse 9. Verse 9 is why we know this about the Pharisee. What is his deal? He trusts in himself that he is righteous. He looks at what he does to find the confidence to believe that he's right with God. And he looked at the tax collector. Notice that. He treats the tax collector just like Jesus, just like the header says, with contempt. Right? As he's praying, he says, I thank you that I'm not like this loser over here. I thank you for that. That I don't live like that. That I'm not that bad. Right? Since I'm not like him, I am right with God. That's what he's saying. And there's a danger here. There's a danger here that that we may not be seeing. We may not... A problem we may be assuming that we don't have. Because, beloved, you can give God the credit for a changed life but believe that your changed life is what makes you right with Him. And then verse 14, if that's the case, is talking about us, if that's how we think. You can start out rightly believing, as you should, that you got saved by grace, but then start believing that you stay saved by your works. That God lets you stay in the house because you do pretty good. 
And then you start praying like a Pharisee, thinking like a Pharisee. But look at the tax collector. Now, what did he do? And we want to know what he did. Because in verse 14, we find out that he did go down to his house justified. He did leave the temple right with God. So what's the difference? What did he do? He looked away from himself. Completely. Notice that in the text. There isn't an opposite list of wrong things that he has done. There's just, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which means, it didn't matter what he saw when he looked at himself, when he looked at his behavior. Even if there was some good, there was so much bad, all he can do is cry out. All the man can do is beat his chest and cry and hope that somehow, against all odds, in spite of who he is, that God will be merciful to him. And God was. Because, which is what the word for means, there in the beginning of verse, or the middle of verse 14, why was God merciful to him? Why did he go home justified? Because everyone who exalts himself, so now we know that's actually what the Pharisee was doing, even though he starts out, I thank you, God, he was actually exalting himself. You see that? Because he trusted in himself that he was righteous. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself. Now we know that's what the, that, that's what the, the tax collector was doing. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted or justified here. Made right with God. The whole text here. The whole text is about this issue. On what grounds do we come before God? On what grounds do we approach a God that is three times holy? So look where Luke immediately takes us next. To little, tiny, helpless babies. Look at verse 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Right? They rebuked Jesus. And he said to them, I'm sorry, I messed up my pages here. My fault. <laughs> I knew my nerves were going to betray me at some point, so now they... <laughs> So, I'm missing a page. <laughs> so I'm going to wing it, all right? <laughs> oh, wait, hold your applause, it was stuck. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, Luke does not throw this in here because he had it in his notes after all the research he had done. And he thought, at some point i got to get that story in about the infants and Jesus. No, no, no. This story is a living illustration of what he has just said about justification. Why let the little children come to Jesus? Why does the kingdom of God belong to such? Because all babies can do is cry and hope that someone will help them. But then look at what happens next. 
And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the Holy Spirit is so good, beloved. The text is so tight. What must I do in order to know that I can have eternal life. Now the reason the man is asking that question is because he believes that if Jesus tells him what to do, he can do it. Right? That's why he's asking, tell me what to do so that I can do that thing in order to then be sure of the fact that I have eternal life. The Pharisee is real from the parable. Verse 19, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what is he saying to him? Are you saying that I'm God or you wouldn't be calling me good. So if I am, are you going to listen to what I'm about to tell you? You know the commandments. Verse 20, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So Jesus is saying something very similar to what he said back in chapter 17 about the Pharisees. Look, if that's the way you want in, then here's your list. Here's the way you have to behave. And he said... The rich ruler said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, who does he sound like? Is he quoting the Pharisee from the parable? Oh, I've done that. I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Seriously? One thing? How perfect is this man? Jesus doesn't call him a liar. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So three things, but it's one thing. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. What did Jesus just do? Jesus Christ zeroed in on the one thing this excellent man could not do. It wasn't, also, it wasn't that by doing the things in verse 23, he would be made right with God. We know that from Paul's letters, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. So it wasn't that he could have earned eternal life if he would have actually been telling the truth and behaving. Notice, again, Jesus doesn't say back to him in verse 21, Oh, come on. No, you haven't. You haven't kept all of the law since you were a youth, Right? And God doesn't call the Pharisee back in the parable a liar. That's not the point. That, the point is he doesn't say that. Because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if this man has kept the whole law. It doesn't matter if the Pharisee was perfectly righteous. It will not make you righteous enough before a holy God to keep a written law. It's not enough. So what if he had kept the law since he was young? We know that if that's where he's looking to find the confidence to know I'm good with God, then he's lost. He's not justified. All the man is asking Jesus for, really, is the ability to dot his own I's and cross his own T's. Right? And that's why he calls him good teacher, by the way. If you really have that much self-confidence and your ability to make yourself right before God, Jesus will never be beautiful to you. He'll just be a teacher. He'll just be a tutor. 
Right? Help me out, Jesus. You know, there's a few things I'm missing. Give me some extra details and I'll live the kind of life I need to live so that I'll be right before God. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. It doesn't matter if you're perfect. And I'm not patronizing anybody. You might be very perfect or awful close. It means nothing. It will not make you right with God. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it, or how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And I think he's driving at something deeper, although he is talking about material wealth. I think context is also spiritual wealth, the sense that I have plenty. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why? Because money is evil? No. It's just paper. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. The Bible says for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So the problem is not paper. The problem is the heart. Always. It's so hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do we know why? Because only babies can enter the kingdom of heaven. Only babies, only those who know they're so helpless, the only hope they have as they're crying is that somebody will pass by and take them up and help them. And rich people, be it spiritually or maybe materially, don't ever think of themselves that weak. Don't ever think of themselves that needy, that helpless. Why? Because they have plenty to point to. They have plenty to point to for their confidence. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So there it is. There's the hint. Only God can save. Now we're going to start to roll. Alright? Here's where it starts to get good. Look at verse 28. And Peter said, see, look, Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. Look what we've done. You see what he's doing? You see what Peter is? Of course, it had to be Peter. But look at what he's doing. Jesus, hold on, hold on. We're talking about, you know, then who can be saved? Look at what we've done. Right? He does it right away. We've left everything and followed you. Look how serious we are about salvation. Look how serious we are about following you, Jesus. We've left everything and followed you. That means we're justified, right? We're saved, right? We're serious enough for God to accept us. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Do not look to anything that you have done to find the confidence that God accepts you. Leave it all behind. Leave it all behind. You're not losing anything when you leave everything behind and cling with both hands to Christ. You lose nothing and you gain everything. But look at this. Verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus never does anything just because. Every miracle, every parable has a context. And in this moment, as what we're about to read, but here, right in the middle of this passage, is Jesus proclaiming to us, listen. He's saying to everyone that can hear, listen. If you want to be saved, and all the goodness that you could muster up, and all the bad that you could shun won't do it, that means you are going to need a substitute. You're going to need a substitute to be made right with God. That's how lost we are apart from Him. We cannot offer up a sacrifice great enough to atone for our own sins. And we cannot perform enough righteousness to make ourselves holy enough for God. So the only way a human being can ever be made right with God is if somebody comes and lives a perfect life without sin and then offers that perfect life up as a sacrifice and pays the debt for all our sin and then credits all of that to our accounts by His perfect blood That has to happen. Or there's no hope whatsoever for salvation. And Jesus is stopping right in the middle of this passage to say, that is what I am going to do for all who believe. That's what I'm going to do for all who come. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the substitute. And then comes the blind beggar. And the climax of the whole section. As he drew near to Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Begging. Book ends. Chapter 18. We started in verse 9, but chapter 18 starts out with a widow begging a judge day and night for justice. And now it ends with a blind man begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Verse 37. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him. We've seen all this happening. We've seen crying out. We've seen rebuking. Telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Can you just see him in your head slapping away their hands, trying to get upright, trying to get to him? Son of David, don't pass me by. Have mercy on me. Stop. Have mercy on me. He's too blind and helpless to stay quiet. All he can do is cry. You see this text coming together? And Jesus stopped and commanded him, to be brought to him, just like a baby in verse 15. Can't even get himself to Jesus. He has to be carried, helpless and crying out, Beloved, somebody has to carry you into the kingdom. Nobody comes into the kingdom standing upright on two strong legs. Nobody. And when he came near, he asked him. He asked him. Think about the way this is reversing What the rich ruler just said to Jesus. Jesus says to the blind beggar, What do you want me to do for 
you. Jesus Christ is a Savior. That's what He does. You see how He responds to somebody that can bring Him nothing? You see how Jesus acts when the only thing the man has is a voice to cry out and say, Please stop! Please help me! He sounds like a Pharisee praying it or a tax collector praying in the temple. Sounds like a little baby, doesn't he? We don't work for him. We don't do for him. In salvation, he does for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We don't come to Him with full hands. We don't come to Him with a list. We don't even come to Him with confidence. We come to Him like a blind, begging, baby, widow, tax collector. Please, stop! Through His Word, the risen Christ is passing by this morning. And if you think you have something to offer Him that would make Him save you, He's just going to keep right on walking. He said in verse 41, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Why faith? What is it about faith that brings the Holy God down to us? Faith looks away from self. Faith looks to Jesus alone. Faith is our agreement with God that it is impossible for us to save ourselves. And faith is the confidence that He alone can and will save us. That's what faith is. Faith is dropping everything we could point to for the confidence that God would accept us and just saying, I am blind. Will you please heal me? That's what faith is. I have nothing, but will you please help me? We should always have that posture. No matter how long we've known it. Verse 43, And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Grace accomplished all of that. And so I'm asking each one of you, what do you want Jesus to do for you this morning? Moundsville Baptist Church. As he passes by the rows and aisles of this place. I don't know you. I don't know what struggles you have. I don't know how you hear this text. But I do know this. The only thing Jesus responds positively to all through this text is helplessness. We all try to be strong, don't we? we all, that's the goal, to be strong. And yet it's very clear in Scripture that His strength is not made perfect in our strength. It is not made perfect in our best. It is made perfect in our weakness. 
Stay weak. Need Him. You will glorify Him. That's the funny thing. You'll glorify Him when you're weak. Look at verse 43. That's a blind beggar. He accomplished evangelism. He glorified God. He's just blind, or was blind, and helpless. Keep believing that no matter how good you might get, what you will always ultimately need from God is His mercy. Do not look to what you are doing or not doing to get your confidence. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to His forgiveness, to His righteousness, and then approach the throne of grace with the boldness of a lion. But not because we've made ourselves righteous, but because it is finished. I'm not a preacher because I'm a great man. I am not. I'm not a preacher because I'm strong. I'm not. I'm a preacher because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock, I stand all other ground, all of it. I've stood on a million things. It's all sinking sand. All of it but Him. All of it. I'm a preacher because of that. That's why I have a song to sing. That's why I have a sermon to preach. Because God does not lie. And when Jesus finished it, He finished it. And He will see it through to the end for me. That's why I preach. How do we know we have eternal life? The question the rich ruler asked, how do I know that I have eternal life? Because Jesus died and was raised for sinners. And that hope is fixed behind the veil where the God who is three times holy accepts the blood and righteousness of Christ on my behalf forever. That's how I know I have eternal life. You take just, I'm almost done. In Philippians 3, you don't don't have to turn there unless you want to. Verses 3 through 11. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says there? He says... Basically, I'm paraphrasing, and and please check me by the word, you know, if you want to just make sure that I'm not misquoting. But basically what Paul is saying is, is that you think that you have some stuff to point to, to know that you're righteous, or to have confidence that you're righteous before God. Let me give you my list. I was born of the... I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day, right, as, as... as, 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 a, as according to zeal, I was a Pharisee. According to the law, blameless. Right? No reason to disbelieve him. 
Paul was blameless under the law. And what does he say in that passage? What does Paul say? Everything I had, everything that I could point to, to find the confidence to believe that I was right with God, all of it, all the law keeping, all the good behavior, all the discipline, I count it as rubbish. Get it away from me. Do you see what he's saying? Get it away from me that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that depends on faith. Paul says, when I stand before Him, I don't want to stand there like a confident Pharisee. I want to stand there like a blind beggar and just believe that Jesus is enough to make me whole. Get away from me any list, anything I could count, anything I could look to for my confidence. There is a righteousness, beloved, that only comes to us by faith. It does not come by works. It comes by trusting and believing in the risen Christ and nothing else. How, how did Jacob... How did the cheating younger brother get his older brother's rightful inheritance? He had to dress like his older brother. He had to be his older brother. And when Jesus saves, it's exactly what he does. He clothes me in his robes. And God is not like their father Isaac. God knows exactly what's going on. And He accepts me because I'm dressed in the righteousness of my older brother and nothing of my own. Nothing. We must look away from ourselves and to Christ alone in total dependence and faith. Believing that He can and He will make us whole. He's a Savior. That's what He does. He passes by. What do you want Him to do for you? Don't ask Him to read your list of reasons He should accept you. And after all, what could widowed, infant, lame, blind tax collectors do for a king anyway? Now grab a hold of His robe and say, let me recover my sight. Make me whole. Help me. And He will. He always will. That's what He does. And that's who He is. And so this morning, if you don't know Him at all, and you look at your record, you look at what you've done or you look at what you haven't done, and you assume that you're way too impoverished to come to Jesus, you need to know you are exactly the kind of person He is here to help this morning. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what your record is. He's a Savior. And if you're here this morning and you know Him and you struggle with doubt and fear and you're riddled with guilt about whether or not you're good enough, grab hold of His robe this morning. He saves. If you are His, you are His, and no one and nothing, including you, can snatch you out of His hand. Find rest in Christ this morning.